This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Hey everyone, welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. As we wrap up our Flipping the Script series today, we're going to be diving into what it's like to change things up after a divorce. Also, how to grow during times of healing and how poetry is a therapeutic outlet with none other than the poet Maggie Smith. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome, 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 welcome to the show. All right, you guys. So today we are finishing what has been such a lovely little series called For the Love of Flipping the Script. I've absolutely loved this series. I have loved our guests. We have talked to people who have made a hard left or a hard right turn. They've Some of them chose their flip. Some of their flips were chosen for them, but all of them faced sort of a new day with courage and grit and 
intelligence and agency. And I've learned so much from our guests in this series. And today, you guys, is absolutely no exception at all. We're going to be diving into what it is like to live through and recover from a divorce and how healing is different for every person and how growth unfortunately often comes from the most uncomfortable or painful parts of life. I don't want this to be true. And yet here we are. But for, you know, for so many of us, frankly, we avoid the hard parts of life because they are, well, hard, right? They are uncomfortable. They require to push and pull ourselves in directions that we're not used to or we don't want to go. The weird thing is, the frustrating thing is, they do bring us so much closer to who we were meant to be, who we could be, and where we are meant to go. I mean, you know, I've talked at length about this, but this has 100% been true in my life. You know, I also went through a divorce last year. We're just past the year mark. And I didn't want it. This was not a script I wanted. I had written a completely different script for my life all the way to the end until I was, until my funeral, I'd written the whole script. And so I didn't want this one, but it's the one I was handed. And so I had to figure out what to do with it. I've never one time been Pollyanna about any of this, but it is true that I have grown and even flourished in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise. I just wouldn't have. I know it for sure. It forced me out of this comfortable little cocoon that I had built for myself that I expected to be forever. And I had to figure out how to fly. And so I'm actually grateful for those results. I am. Am I grateful for the whole story? I am not. But am I thankful? I was sort of forced into a a period of self-examination and growth and agency and self-empowerment and awareness. And I am. And so I think that's why I was so looking forward to today's conversation for more than one reason. But you guys get excited because I am talking today with the absolutely amazing Maggie Smith. So (laughs) if you don't already know Maggie, if you don't already follow her, I let me just say right up front, you're going to absolutely love this episode. It's Maggie reads to us one of her favorite pieces. I read to her some of her favorite pieces of mine. She's humble and kind and honest. And anyway, all right, look, here's the deal. Maggie is an absolutely award-winning author of Good Bones, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, and then the national bestseller, which we end up talking quite a bit about because it meant so much to me. It's called Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change, which she actually wrote in the midst of her divorce. And so the words, I mean, you can see why it meant so much to me. That was really my first real experience of Maggie. And now I've, of course, followed her ever since and told my team, I really want to have Maggie Smith on the podcast. And so Maggie was the 2011 recipient of a creative writing fellowship, and she's received several individual excellence awards from the Ohio Arts Council, where she lives, two Academy of American Poets Prizes. And in all of her free time, LOL, her writing has appeared everywhere. New York Times, New Yorker, Paris Review, Best American Poetry. And then her newest book, which we'll also talk about today, Goldenrod, 
dives into complex topics like parenthood and solitude and love and memory. And she does this all with the pen of a poet. Her writing is stunning. It is beautiful. It's rich in wisdom. It's lyrically like awe-inspiring. And best of all, which I, I tell her in this interview, it's accessible. It is accessible. I always thought poetry was beyond me because I wasn't good at it in a academic setting the way that it was taught. And Maggie taught me that I am poetry's for me too. And so you are absolutely going to love this conversation with that wonderful Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith, welcome to the For the Love podcast. I am just truly, truly delighted to meet you. Jen, it's so good to meet you. I mean, I'm looking forward to when we can do this in person, but it's so good to get to chat in this way. I will tour guide you around Austin and yes. I will eat vegetarian with you. You don't have to. I like vegetarian food. No judgment. I, I could almost be vegetarian and my singular hangup, the one that I just cannot get over are hamburgers. I, oh, the worst, the worst ground red meat. I couldn't even say chicken. You know, I'm like, I got to have a burger. Nobody misses chicken, Jen. Nobody misses chicken. It's not that special, right? No. What do you miss? Do you miss anything? Yeah, I miss a burger with like blue cheese. Mm. I do. I do miss fried chicken sometimes. Mm. Mostly Mm. I miss what my mom made growing up that she still makes for our Sunday dinners. But now I have like a sad little side car. Totally. I'm allowed Did to she eat. make like a pot roast. Would she? Yeah, like pot roast, you yeah. know, pork chops, you know, spaghetti, sure. homemade meatballs, meatloaf, and everybody at the table is eating it, including my children. And I'm like, with my herb crusted tofu. <laughs> it's fine. Okay. Oh, my 21 year old daughter's vegetarian and has been so since she was 13. She she picked up the mantle and had carried it forward. Well, she's a pescatarian, really. But my whole kitchen experience is having her little side piece on yep. the side of whatever I'm making. It's, it's the sauce without the sausage or yep. it's the pasta without the chicken. So I know exactly what you're talking about when she's got her little ramekin. Oh, I know. And the rest of us are going face down, like in meat sauce. Yeah. But bless the moms who, who uh-huh. make that little sidecar for us. I mean, <laughs> you're doing, you're doing the good work. So yeah, I thank you for that. Okay. Let's start here. I have already high leveled for my listeners a little bit about you, your incredible credentials, which are over the top, but can you just tell us in your own words, a little bit about yourself? Who are your people? Where are you in the world? And kind of what it is generally that you do. Yeah. I mean, in some ways that's really easy because I'm still in my place with my people. I I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm still here. So when I say I have Sunday dinner with my family, meaning my sisters, my brothers-in-law, my nieces and nephews, and my parents, it is at the table I ate at as a child. I love this with my whole heart. Yep. I mean, on Sundays, that's what we do. And my son takes his rod and fishes in the creek behind the house that I used to play in. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm still in, in, you know, my hometown, which is a city. It's not like I'm in a little place, but I'm still here mostly because my people are here. That's been really important to me. I'm a pretty rooted individual, you know, change is hard for me. We'll talk about that. <laughs> 
so yeah, so I'm still, you know, I've been in the house I'm in now for 11 years. I'll be here at least until my son graduates from high school because that's the I've made. How, how um, old is he right now? He is eight. So yeah, we, got okay. All right. we got another decade here. Halfway mm-hmm. through and then we can think about it. And so, so yeah, so I'm here. I'm, I'm with my two kids. They're eight and 12, almost 13. My family all lives nearby. I have been writing since I was a teenager and still doing that and have been self-employed. So working from this little office you can see me in for 10 years. And so I, I teach, I travel to give readings and, you know, keynotes and talks. I edit other people's books on occasion. I write my own and most of it just happens in some little room of this house or in the rock there on the front porch. I have a million things to say about everything you just said. <laughs> Verbose. Brevity is not my long suit, but I also live right here with my entire family, my parents, my siblings, all their families. My three best friends live within like 0.02 miles from this house. Two of us are on this street. Two of us are on that street. And so this life that you're describing of being rooted and like deeply connected to your people, that being enough, that being what you want, that being a part of the like joy and beauty of your life is so familiar to me. It's so familiar. People have asked me a lot since my divorce, like, are you going to move? Like you could just go have a adventure. You know, you want to go live in New York. Why don't you, why don't you just go live in the mountains? And I'm like, I couldn't leave my people. I, I, I have no imagination for it. I, I literally cannot imagine not being with them. Okay. And here is something else I want to tell you. I am obviously a word person. And I said a few years ago to my friend, Shauna Nequist, I said, something has malfunctioned inside of my brain. I, I can't figure out poetry. I never have. Like when I was in college, poetry was my lowest score on ev- anything I did in any <laughs> of my literature class. I, I couldn't get, I wanted to just enjoy the language, but the classes were requiring all this dissection and all this interpretation. And I couldn't ever just find my way through. And I just told Sean, I think I'm just bad at it. I'm just bad at poetry. I, this is a category for me that I don't have a brain for. And she was like, you need Maggie Smith. And I'm like, she prescribed me to she you. Prescribed you. You were the pill. She's like, no, you just need Maggie Smith. You're not reading the right kind of poetry for your brain. Like, you just need to branch out from these like, you know, classes and poetry in college to like what's really out there in the world as an offering for you. And so, you were my gateway drug to loving, loving poetry, like drinking it in like water. I want to thank you for your work just personally that convinced me that I could be a poetry person and I'm not dumb. I'm not poetry dumb. No, not at all. I think so many people have that experience of being frankly, just taught badly in school. I think that's it. Yeah. And thinking it's a riddle to be solved and feeling very on the outside of this in sort of like inside thing. And it doesn't have to be like that. I really, it doesn't have to be like that. I was like, I don't know what the river means. I think it's just water. Isn't like it moving just a through. river? Isn't it? Isn't that just the sun? 
like call, making warmth. You know, I just I couldn't <laughs> ever crack the code. Yeah, it seemed I like there it. was a code to crack, and it lost its mystery and magic and became formulaic for me in learning. But your work has shown me it can be lovely and magical and lyrical and accessible again. And so, okay, having said that, can we talk about your career arc as a poet? This is such a niche. I mean, it's such a such a niche. It's such a special gifting, such a special skill set. Can you talk about, you mentioned you've been writing since you were a teen, not surprised. You're kind of writing, you're almost, you're born with those words inside of your body. Where did you start? How, how did that begin to where you are now? And how, I'm curious how poetry it's established itself as such an important part of your life. And was there a moment, like, was there this, watershed moment when you said, oh my, I think this can be my work. I can think I can make a living at this. This is a job because it took me a very long time to know that writing could be a job that felt like something in the movies. Yeah. I think I'm still having that. I'm still sort of towing that line. I mean, I remember when I would pick up my kids from the elementary school and I would be standing around with the others, you know, sort of quote, stay at home moms. Cause we were the only people who were around at three o'clock. That's, right. That's right kids and somebody said so what do you do you know what do you do that you're able to be here at three o'clock every day and I was like oh I'm a writer and I thought it's a weird thing because the the next thing that people ask you is like well what do you write books or like do you write like for the newspaper or how do you pay bills like how does that work so yeah I mean I've been writing poems since I was you know my daughter's age really And really nothing else until I started writing essays in my, you know, 40s. But it was always going to be poetry. I just, it was the most natural thing to me, like more natural to me than anything I've ever done other than love people. Like mother my kids, natural. Can do it in my sleep, doesn't feel like work. The lunch packing feels like work. (laughs) Mothering, you know, the loving them does not feel like work. And poetry to me, feels like that. Not that revision isn't work, not that it comes out easily. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly struggling with the poem I've written and then the gap between that and the thing I know it can be. And I just don't know always how to close that gap. So it's not easy, but it's natural. I think in some ways always has been. And I think probably in my early twenties, college was when I thought, no, this is just going to be what I do. Not necessarily what I do to pay my bills, but this is going to be something I do all of my life in some way and not just for me, but in a way that I want to share with other people. I want it to be bigger than just something I write in my little notebook and show to a friend. I want it to be something different. And so, you know, going to graduate school and kind of committing to three years of being immersed in it and investing in myself in that way really set me on the path. And now I just don't know how to stop doing it. I mean, if someone told me, you have to stop writing poems, you know, your children's life depends on you never writing another poem, or your health depends on you never writing another poem, I could do that. I could never write it down. But it's in here. It's in my mind. I mean, I will never stop seeing or hearing or thinking poems, even if I could never write another thing down on paper. It's just the way I process the world. 
So the fact that I'm able to sort of make a living at it is, you know, I, I cobble it together from lots of different things because um, one cannot sell poems out of the trunk of one's car <laughs> in a parking lot like you might do like strawberries or ribs. It is, it's been, I've been pleasantly surprised at what it has looked like for me to sort of take the leap and try to carve out or shape this life for myself without really knowing 20 some years ago, what it might look like. And it seems like, of course, I'm just looking in from the outside, but it seems like your readership has expanded beyond what might be typically considered a poetry community. Readers that are just drawn to that genre and that's really what they read and that's their space. You have readers really from every walk of life. You've You've really, your words and your work have found a way to like develop these tendrils and come out here and like grab us fiction people. And, (laughs) you know, like you pull us into your vortex. Did you have, as you were coming up, especially in your younger years, high school, college, who were you reading that you loved? Like, did you have a muse? Did you have a, another writer that you thought, not that you patterned yourself after him or her, but that something about the way that they, their work affected you. You said there's something in here that I want to kind of emulate in some way, or, or at least find my own rhythm of this kind of work. I don't know who, who inspired you. Yeah. And it's changed through the years. I mean, when I first started writing, I joke, I was writing Sylvia Plath cover poems because (laughs) you know I read so much Plath and so much Sexton so much insistent that that all my poems when I was really young sounded like knockoffs, you know, and that's just, that's how we, that's how we start. That's how we all start. And so then as I got a little bit older, then I started into different poets. Then I was reading like a ton of Louise Glick and I can see back to those poems. I'm like, Oh yeah, I, that, that was bleeding in, or there's a little Mark Strand in that one, or there's a little Robert Haas in that one. And after having kids, I had a real crisis. I didn't write a poem. For a year after my daughter was it's the longest period of time I've ever gone because I just didn't know what my work would be. I thought, well, what do I write now? Do I write about, I mean, my life is like breast pumps and naps and spit up wipes and long walks. And I mean, how do I write this life? Like, is this literature or do I put this in a pen over here and then do I write other stuff? But then what is that? because my life is completely consumed by this human. And so for a year, I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And luckily, part of the coming back process was reading poets who were moms, you know, reading Beth Ann Fennelly and Brenda Shaughnessy and Sharon Olds and like reading all of these books where I saw like women's bodies, like actual visceral experiences. And it wasn't always pretty and it wasn't always happy and it wasn't always perfect, but it was real. So I I feel like we're always kind of refreshing the model as we go through different phases of our lives and see like, okay, who's, who's doing what I need to do now? Like I'm feeling my container expanding. So I need to expand. I need to expand what I'm feeding myself in order to make this work you know I need to be able to see new possibilities and and that comes from from expanding what I'm what I'm taking in same same 
just a wider exposure to different writers, different thinkers, different leaders. Same for me. And thank goodness that we're growing. Thank goodness that we're evolving both in our craft, in our worldview, that we don't have to segment ourselves out just to remain in an old container, that we get to find a way to integrate and we get to find kind of fresh wind at our back at whatever stage of life that we're in. Not surprising, keep moving has meant an enormous amount, um, an enormous deal to me. Shauna sent it to me last year. She just said, but coming in the mail, just trust me, like this is going to serve you well. Didn't even tell me what it was. (laughs) And so I get a copy of keep moving on my doorstep and like, I don't even know where to start. I'm going to, I've screenshotted a handful of my favorite. So I'm going to have you talk about keep moving and then I'll say some of my favorite words from it, but it really caught fire after you kind of just began sharing a few posts, right? This is for you in the wake of divorce. I would just love to hear you if you are comfortable talking about that season of life and where your heart and mind were at. So how this began to turn into something that turned into keep moving. Yeah. I mean, I love you got a book on your doorstep that was never really meant to be a book. I mean, I I had no idea I was writing a book. I just, my marriage ended. I was like, absolutely just sort of like flailing in the water, trying to keep my nose and mouth out of it. And part of that for me, because the, the thing I do that makes me feel most like myself is right. So when I'm really like, who am I? I thought my life was this and it's not. I thought I was this person and I'm not. I thought I meant this, but I didn't. I thought I was going to get to do X, Y, and Z, but now all of that is trashed. That sort of identity hit that happened that I think we don't talk enough about around divorce. Like it's not just losing a person. It's like losing the person you were with that person and losing everything you were going to get to do going forward. And also in a lot of cases, questioning everything that came before. And so I was really flailing. And part of what helped me stay anchored was writing. And I, I was sort of, I was in too, too much pain to really write poems. I was not in a place where I could think and structure and shape So what I started doing is writing myself a little pep talk every day. And so I would write a few sentences, usually pretty grounded in metaphor, because that's the poet in me. And I just would post it on my Twitter. And I didn't say what was going on in my life. People didn't know. Um, I just, over time, I started, you know, it felt good to do it the first day. So I did it another day. And I had no idea that it was going to be a daily practice. I just figured I would keep doing it as long as it served me. And what I found was that all these other people started sharing them and retweeting them and DMing me and emailing me off my website and saying, I needed this to get through these three hours. Or you have no idea how much I could have used this when my life blew up four years ago. But here I am in this better place, so know that's coming. And that sense of a purpose that I got from doing that project and the sense of shared community, a feeling like at a time when I felt completely alone and floundering, that suddenly, especially in this space, I think we tend to think of as being kind of like shallow and self-promotional and used for more evil than good. Like Twitter, it ended up being a really 
warm and positive and affirming experience. And people started asking for a book. Like, I wish this was a journal or I wish this was, I wish this was a book I could have on my, on my nightstand or carry or send to a friend. And so that's really where the idea came to sort of build this thing out into not just the quotes, but these essays that came from people on social media. I love this because obviously for you, the content was born out of, it was a post-divorce, you know, recovery process, but the words, the healing words, the recovery words, really the words of hope apply to a million scenarios, whatever a person has lost, whatever a season of suffering they've gone through and emerging from, it isn't, it has relevance for anybody in pain. So my divorce began last summer. So July, last July was when for me, everything you just said, who I was, my family unit, everything, my vision for my whole life, my vision for my kids' whole life is just, it just dissolved in one second. And I too, for a few months was, I was just suffering so much. I couldn't have handled, people were sending me books left and right, trying to serve. I I, I couldn't read it. It was too much. I was too overwhelmed. I was, I needed Maggie Smith to give me two sentences. That's what I could digest. Like that's what I could take in. It was succinct. I could hold it in my heart. I could remember the words and the language. And it was like just a teeny little lantern that day. Like just everything's dark and here's a little lantern. So I'm just going to read some of the pages that I loved from Keep Moving. Hope is imaginative. It allows you to envision what might be up ahead, even when you see nothing. Hope, imagine your way forward from keep moving. And I also metaphorically written about kind of being lost at sea. Like I just couldn't see anything. Everything was dark all around me. I cannot, there's no shore. I'll never find land again. I'm adrift. So some of your words came to me in a, in a metaphorical place that I understood. Like, I'm going to hope my way to that shore. I am, I'm going to look for that lighthouse and it's so far away, but like that one little light will show me that I'm on the right path. Here is something that was precious. And I've had to work really hard at this. This has been a part of my kind of mental and spiritual practice this year to learn. I I really have had to honestly probably learn this for the first time. So this is also from keep moving. Be sure of at least one thing in this moment that you are loved and worthy of love. Hold tightly to what you know to be real and true and good about who you are. Be sure of yourself. Oh, was that hard for you? Because that was hard for me. Yeah, it was hard for me. Yeah. I mean, we count on the people in our lives to be our mirrors. If what we see in that other person and that mirror is not good, it's hard not to believe it even if it's distorted, you know, funhouse distorted, even if we shouldn't trust it, it's hard not to. And so finding new mirrors. And that means like, you know, really looking at yourself and and remembering who you are. But I mean, for me being by my people, going to my mom's and sitting out on her deck and letting her remind me of who I am and who I've always been and letting my kids be my mirrors and letting my, you know, my best friends 
be my mirrors. And, and that, it is hard. I mean, it, it was incredibly hard. I mean, I, I wrote these quotes in the middle of my divorce. Like the, I didn't finish the book until, I, I finished the book before my divorce was final. Wow. So, I mean, this was, this was not a post-divorce book. This was a, I'm in my divorce writing this book. So it happened in real time. And I was pep talking myself through the whole thing. And then it came out in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic and none of us knew what the heck we were doing. And so it, it means a lot to me to hear you say that you think it's it's widely applicable because I never wanted to write a divorce book. I didn't, I didn't anticipate this being a divorce book. I, I pictured it being, a, okay, you're in a what now stage in your life. How do you find the sort of like best parts of yourself to draw on to get you through it? Your courage, your, you know, your resilience, your sense of your own goodness, your optimism, even if it's tiny, you know, how, how do you find those things in order to carry through knowing that it's not always going to be as hard as it is? Oh, in yeah. this I love that you just said that because I have another one, oh, another favorite. I have so many, I have so many of these screenshots, so many. Okay. But to your point that you just said, this is also another one from keep moving. Oh, I love this. This, I, when I, the first time I read this, I thought about it for weeks. Trust future you to handle some of what present you is grappling with. Future you will know more and hurt less. Remember that they're out there, arms empty, waiting to carry what you hand them. Oh, I can cry my eyes out. Oh, yeah, it's true. I'm still counting on future me. I mean, I don't think we ever stop counting on future me because the place I'm in right now is so much better than the place I was in in 2018. But I'm not all the way there. Like, I don't, I don't feel out of the woods, so to speak. So I keep thinking, like, what is 2023 Maggie going to feel like and be up to? And what challenges will I be able to rise to then? And so I still, I still think about that person. Like, I try not to kick too much down her way. Like, I, I try to solve as much as I can. So I'm not, I'm not saddling her with a bunch of stuff she doesn't need. But there's stuff I can't do now that I know she'll be able to handle. Oh gosh. It's so good. That wisdom is so good. I mean, even I'm just a little bit behind you. So I'm at the year mark. And even as I think about what me right now, me has been able to do that six months ago, me just couldn't. I see that this capacity just continues to grow and that healing just rolls forward and that feels exciting. I, I'm not sure I knew that six months ago. I'm actually stunned, Maggie, that you could access these ideas and this brand of hope and possibility in the weeds. And I don't know if you were just faking it for your own self, because I do that sometimes. I will tell myself a thing that I'm just like, get there, Jen. I'm going to say that it's just, you get there. Here's the thing. Was it some combination for you of this is actually true for me? I want this to be true for me. I'm assuming it's going to be true for me. Was it a little bit of all of it? Yeah, it was a blend. I mean, there were definitely some days were easier than others. Some days I was like, I'm going to have to fake it till I make it. Like, I mean, I knew enough to know that it would be okay. But even though it wasn't in that moment. And so, yeah, some of it was sort of aspirational writing. Like, 
I'm going to write myself into the better place. Like I'm, I'm building the road I'm walking at the same time that I'm having to walk it. So if I can just stay like a foot in front of myself, cave, then I'll be, I'll be able to, to do it. I think too, like there's something to be said with really stewing in one's juices. And I think about the, the healing that I was able to do. And healing is a word that makes me nervous. I, I wouldn't say I'm healed, but the healing I was able to do while writing that book, I think was because I had to really sit with it. I, my job was writing the book. So I wasn't able to shove everything I was feeling aside and go to work and then do some other job that had nothing to do with how I was feeling and stuff it down. And not yeah, the work was it. processing it. The work was processing it. I mean, I, my literal work was, was also my sort of spiritual and emotional work. And, and it, it was painful sometimes. Like I just didn't, you know, there were days I was like, I don't really want this to be my job today. But at the same time, I don't think I would have felt the way I did at the end of that year if I had been busying my brain with other things, you know, I mean, I just went into it. I'm curious you having, you being one stage ahead of me here and having, so as you just mentioned, deeply processed it in every possible way from every angle. I'm curious what you have, if, if you were just going to grab onto a couple of things that turned out to be true that you learned that you suspected maybe, or maybe you did it. Maybe it surprised you because you know what you and I have never done this before. We've never been divorced before. We've, we've never rebuilt our lives in our forties by ourselves. We don't have precedence for it. And so we can't even sometimes guess what's coming down the pike. That's been true for me just in one calendar year. So if you were going to grab onto a couple of things that turned out to be true, that maybe you predicted and maybe you didn't, what would you say? knowing that also a lot of listeners are in flux right now. They are, they have a big question mark ahead of them. They don't know the end's not there. We don't, the, we've got one foot paved, you know, in front of us and we're just not sure where it's going. So I would just love to hear your wisdom on that and your experience really. I mean, I think a, a lot of my work over the past few years has been learning to live with not knowing and having comfortable with not knowing as somebody who is a planner is type a is organized has based has built my life around familiarity and routine I for a while was like I just don't know that I'm going to be able to live with this much flux like I might just lose it because it you know I, I don't I have been just white knuckling for so long how do I how do I keep a looser hold on my life? How do I soften my grip a little bit? And I wasn't sure how that would work. And I have been pleasantly surprised at how much ambiguity I'm able to tolerate now that I did not have the, I just didn't have it 10 years ago. If you had told me this was going to happen 10 years ago, I would have had a panic attack. Yeah, same. And so I, I feel now better able to deal with the ambiguity surrounding this, you know, this stage of my life and what has happened. But in turn, it also means that I'm not really freaking out about ambiguity in other areas of my life either, because I've learned, I have built up my a sort of callous around this. I've built up a tolerance to ambiguity, which let me just tell you in this year, 
Totally. What a skill. So has been real handy. Real handy. Real handy. And as you know, I've got, you know, one kid in middle school and another in elementary school and everything is in flux and we don't know what the world looks like. And will I be able to get on an airplane and do the kind of work I used to be able to do? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's just so much that we don't know. And to be honest, there was always a lot we didn't know. I think those of us who are planners build our lives like that so that we can put blinders on in a, in a way and not think about all the things that we don't have control over. And learning to see that it was like that all along. Nothing was guaranteed. Nothing is guaranteed. And that if the worst happens, you'll live through it. I, I have found that to be one of the most helpful things. I don't feel invincible. But I have gone through something that I didn't think I could weather, and I weathered it. And so that is that process has been really, really, really helpful to me. And the other thing I, I think is 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 learning how to see, learning how to reframe things for myself. Like not always expecting the bad things to happen, but opening myself up to the possibility that good things can happen too. And I, I joke and keep moving that I'm a recovering pessimist. And I kind of am because I yeah. always expected the worst to happen, sort of a self-protection. Like if I just expect it's not going to turn out, he's not going to call, they're not going to hire me. They're not going to want to publish that piece. I'm not going to get this thing. The fellowship's not going to come through. Then when it doesn't, big whoop, because I already knew that. And I saved myself from from the heartache and disappointment of it. And I've I've really rethought that in the past few years because I've poisoned so much time. How much time of my life have I poisoned by thinking negatively? When most of the time, actually, if I look back, most things turn out pretty damn good. But I've spent weeks, months, sometimes even years, really in a state of dread, which is sometimes worse than the thing actually happening. You know, it's like Absolutely. that Jaws where you can't see the you can't see the shark. You know, it's under the water, and then the music starts. It's almost worse than when the shark is just there. And so, I don't want to live my life just looking over the edge of the boat constantly, wondering if it's just if it's there and trying to find another way in. Like, I would like to be able to to enjoy the non-shark scenes of my life. <laughs> You're forcing me to read another of your quote from keep moving. You're forcing me to do this because of what you're saying right now. This is something else that you wrote. Remember when you would have been over the moon thrilled to have just a fraction of your life as it is now. So look around you. It's enough. Already the boat is lovely. The boat is filled with people who love us and we love them. And we are living our dreams in wild ways. And that mantra that I'm not waiting for a thing. I'm not waiting for a thing to happen to me. I'm not waiting for somebody else to tip a domino that affects me in a way that I want it affected. I have it. I It's mine. This is enough. Is also a new practice. Yeah. This sense that whether we're stealing ourselves against disappointment for some future thing or that the future thing itself is going to bring us to the next level of joy or happiness. Turns out it mostly doesn't. We already have, we already have, we already have the things we really do. Everything else is kind of bonus. And so I'm actually, and I think you would probably say the same thing. I'm so grateful to have learned these things and, and I'm learning them. I'm let me be fair. 
I am learning them. I have not learned them. Same, same. I'm I mean, them. it's like you've never become. You're just always becoming. That's and it. You become and you become and you become until you end. I mean, there yeah, is no. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But I didn't. It's not that I didn't have access to this level of understanding and wisdom, but I wasn't forced to seize it. I got to just rest on my laurels and go on autopilot and just punch it all out. And so we didn't choose this, right? This was a script that was flipped for us. And yet here we are. So what we do with it does belong to us. That's mine. That's yours. That's the agency right there. That's the agency. And so right there, that agency on what do you do with this level of suffering is pretty powerful, pretty surprising. And I don't know that I would have learned it another way. I'm not sure, but I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have, I would have needed to. I would have just sort of defaulted and depended on some of the other pieces of the scaffolding to hold the thing up. And and that way it's it it feels sometimes strange to feel to feel grateful for the, you know, the worst experiences I know. of teaching you a lesson that you couldn't have learned another way. And it, it reminds me of my friend, Christy Tate, who wrote a great book called Group, said once that when you feel like you need to make a change in your life and you don't, you don't quite know how to get there. And I, I think she said, a therapist said, wish for more pain. Ugh. Wish for more pain because that, if it hurts enough, you will make a change. If it hurts enough, you will make a change. If you're comfortable and complacent and things are just okay enough, you're not going to feel it. But if you have to hobble along and it gets to, and you are hurting too much to keep moving the way that you're moving, then you have to learn how to do things a different way. And so in that way it is, it's like, thank you. I suppose I know. for being my it's teacher, complicated. Me this lesson. I mean, it, it is very complicated and I, that's something I'm still really processing is that I don't think I should have had to learn this way. And yet I'm still grateful for the lessons I learned, even as I was met the way I had to learn them. Yep. Absolutely. That's not a one dimensional idea that just boom. Now I'm happy. All this happened. I can both still be feel cheated at the way it went down and also grateful for where it pushed me. It's uh, those exist together. Let's talk about goldenrod. This is your most recent book just out. And it's fun to watch it go, Maggie, because it's it's got some readers. You've you've attracted some big time readers here on this one. It's cute to watch. First of all, who's the most exciting person to you personally that has read the book, quoted the book, posted about it? Yeah, it's gone. You know, it's been I I think it's it's sort of like you said, it's really it's really fun for me to see people who are not quote unquote poetry people really like the book. So when I see like musicians or actors or like doctors or politicians or, you know, people who maybe they don't have a shelf like the one behind me that's just completely stacked with poetry. Poetry. They've been collecting right. for 30 years. <laughs> that, that is, that's always exciting to me because I, I like the idea of getting poetry to people who might not find it otherwise and being a gatekeeper because then they'll pick up somebody else's book and then that'll lead them to somebody else's book and, and, and will infect the world. Yes. Your plan is well in hand. <laughs> the poets will have their day. I'd love to hear you talk about Goldenrod a little bit and the impetus for it 
and what your writing process was like for you, having come off a pretty raw and tender space, and then kind of what you're hoping it will do out in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, Goldenrod, I've been working on the poems in this book since 2015. Wow. So I don't write a book of poems like I write really any other kind of book. I just write a poem at a time. You just compile them. And then at the end, and then after a certain number of years, I realized, oh, in this Word document or in this Word folder on my laptop, I've got like 200 poems. There's probably a book in there. And so I print everything out and I see how they're in conversation and I, I winnow it down. And so, you know, it's, and some of them get shoved into a maybe pile and some of them get shoved into a no pile. And then the ones that remain, I see how they want to be in conversation. And then I sort of shuffle together and order them. So, so these poems, this book, Goldenrod, really picks up where Good Bones, my last book of poems, left off. So these are the poems that follow the poems in Good Bones. And so I was writing Goldenrod at the same time that I was writing Keep Moving. Because some days were I was going to write a quote, and then I'd work on an essay. And some days I would get an idea for a poem. But since that's not a collection of poetry, it just went into the word file. And I figured I'll be there eventually. So. The newest poems in Goldenrod are from 2020. There are some pandemic poems in this book, but it really does cover, you know, my children from toddler years to the present. It covers our last administration. It covers some of the things I was seeing in the news and having to process as a human and as a mother. It covers the divorce and the end of the marriage. It covers the pandemic and lockdown and quarantine and, and all of us being in this little house together. And so writing process-wise, it's really no different from any other book of poems. I just, I write a poem and I write it until I feel like it's done what it came to do. And then I put it away. And then I write another poem, maybe a week later or a month later. It, one never knows when these things come tapping on the glass and, and want to be let in. And so it was a much different process than writing Keep Moving, which was a sort of heavy push in real time through a difficult time. This is more of a compilation of, of work over, over several years. Oh, what a wonderful way to write. Are your publishers just like, get it to us when you get it to us? Yeah. I mean, it's just That's like, when it's done, it's done. you don't have to chase a deadline. It just comes when it comes and you write it. Oh my goodness. That sounds like a dream. Yeah. You can't really rush a book of poems. At least it I'm doesn't seem like you could. Years. No, it's just, it's done when it's done. Let me ask you this, and there might not be a possible answer. I'm not even sure. But out of Goldenrod specifically, do you have a poem that's your favorite? Do you have one that's so precious to you that you love it with your whole heart? You know, I have a few that are usually in each book. I have a few that are really special to me. And oftentimes they're ones that involve my children because they either they, they, they borrow a scrap of dialogue from them or a question they've asked me. And so they feel really, they feel really personal. And like, I know no one else could have written that poem. Like if I just wrote a poem about a sunset, it is me, right? But when the people I love and our conversations and our place and our stuff and our private jokes or whatever the case may be, when, when those sort of textures and contours make it into a piece of writing, it feels really like mine. And I think particularly since Good Bones went viral and that poem now feels so public domain to me. I feel, I feel somewhat like removed from that piece of work. Like it's not 
really mine, the ones that are so particular and specific and no one else could possibly claim them. Those are the ones that I tend to feel particularly kind of soft about. Hey, I haven't prepared you for this and I don't know if it's uh, immediately possible, but could you just grab one and read it to us? One of your favorites? Of course, of course. So there are a couple of poems in this book that deal with things that my son collects and keeps in his pockets. And actually, okay. I, I have a couple on my desk right here. I've got a little flower, so little nature treasures that he collects, and I carry them for good luck. So this is a pandemic night walk poem with some surprise treasures from my son. It's called Talisman. They look like gifts a crow might bring a human girl desperate to impress her. In the left pocket of my thrifted emerald coat, a scuffed acorn, a glassy black stone, one pink Mr. Potato Head ear. When I touch them, I can believe almost anything. Who's to say they can't keep me safe? Who's to say a bird can't court someone's daughter? But in this life, it's my son who shows his love like a creature that clever, leaving treasures for my fingers to worry against. I carry them like anything I love until they warm in my palm, until I believe. Walking alone at night, the sky feathered blue-black and slowly folding over me, I pocket my left hand and tell myself a story about my life, a story I call talisman, a story that might end well if I tell it right. Oh, I have goosebumps. Oh, thanks. Oh, I love that. Oh, that was fantastic. Okay, everybody listening, more where that came from. You just need to run your little feet to wherever books are sold. And Goldenrod is available for you. Also, you do a really good job with your team of making your books beautiful. Like oh, visually. it's a object. Oh, just so beautiful. Like the colors, the fire, everything is just so lovely to look at. It's, it's just an experience for more than one sense. It's, our senses just, I just follow you into the beautiful pages and the colors and the look of it all. I appreciate your attention to even the aesthetic that also creates a backdrop for your words and your poems. And it's so incredible, Maggie, you're I just, there's nobody exactly like you. You do what you do in a really special way, in a really unique way. And your writing has just meant so much to me. And it was that lantern. It has been that lantern. Like, look up here. Like, there's light up here to, that can lead you out, that can lead you on. Somebody ahead of you who can tell you it gets better. Keep going. Just keep going. So I am, thank you for reading that for us. I want to ask you these last couple of questions. This is, these are questions that I'm asking everybody in this series on flipping the script. So just whatever, whatever comes to mind. Okay. For you, what's the most important thing generally that you get out of switching things up every once in a while? Let's say when it's your choice, you're choosing to do a little flip around. How does that serve you? You know, for me, I think it's reminding myself that it's possible. I, I grew up with a narrative of being the structured kid. My nickname was Checky Listy. Um, <laughs> yeah, as a child, my nickname was Checky Maggie. Listy. I know oh. it's real. Wow. So I have always been someone who was sort of like 
you know, affectionately teased in my family among my, you know, my parents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my sisters for needing to know everything, for having a plan for everything, for not being able to be nimble and pivot and do much on my own. Um, I've not been a brave person. And so honestly, when I'm able to be spontaneous or change my mind or do something different, it feels really affirming to me that I'm not living an old pattern, that I'm, that I, I prove to myself that I'm able to do it. And the more that I practice doing things differently, the more confident I feel handling whatever life throws me, even when I don't get to choose it's when so that trip is flipped. It is so true. Working ourselves through possibility, doing new things in uncomfortable spaces is the most empowering thing that has ever happened to me. Oh, this I, last agreed. year. And uh, modeling it for, for our kids too. That's right. They're watching. Them like, we don't, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm sure it's going to be okay. We're going to do it together. Let's just roll see what happens. And I, I think that's really empowering for them too. Me too. Last question. I borrowed this question from Barbara Brown Taylor, who's a priest. And I just love it. And you can answer this in any possible way that you want to. We sincerely and earnestly are just dumb. It can be anything. <laughs> it can be anything in between. And her question is, what's saving your life right now? Oh, what's saving my life right now? I think my people are saving my life right now. Yeah, my people, my kids, my parents, my friends, my my people are are really and my roots, like my my sense of this is who I am. This is where I am. I'm doing what I came to do and having reminders of that around me constantly, that that sense of rootedness. But yeah, my people have always have always been what saves my life. I don't, I don't know that that will, that'll really ever change. I think that the same. probably going to remain forever and ever. As boring as it is, it's just, will not stop. It's not. it's not. I learned this year that many, 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 many things can fall away for me, even precious things. And I have really what matters still. It, it just can't be undone. It, it, nobody can take from me what means the most to me. And so learning that in the wake of suffering is comforting, comforting, like, okay, now we've done the hardest thing. We've done the thing that we never thought we would do. We've learned things we never thought we would learn. We've endured things we never thought we would endure. And here we are on a podcast. We have makeup on, like our hair's done. Sort of. I mean, sort <laughs> of, it's fair. But we can do this. We can do this. Turns out we can, we do, can do it. Yep. We can. Um, and, and we got our are. people and they're like, you couldn't get rid of us if you wanted to. And so I, yeah. I would have answered exactly like you. It's exactly what I would have said. I love Thank it. you for just being you. Thank you for continuing to bring your work into the world through every season, through every stage, through pain, through growth, through life, through death because that's life. That's, that's why your work, it means so much to all of us because it's all in there. It's all in there. Everything, the rest of us are all experiencing, same as you, finding a way to just keep going, to keep moving. Okay. Lastly, can you just tell my listeners at least where they can find you, your work, your space, all that? Yeah. So I don't get too confused with the dame. 
I am Maggie Smith Poet on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. And I am maggiesmithpoet.com in, in the sort of ether world. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty Googleable if, as long as you put poet or poem on the end and otherwise, <laughs> right. otherwise you're going to get a very, very talented British actress. You sure are. You sure are. <laughs> I'm the you other sh- one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being on today. I'm so, so happy to have met you. And the offer to be your Sherpa around Austin stands. Oh, please. I'm coming. Uh-huh. Now it's on. As yeah. soon as, yeah. as, soon as it, yeah. seems, it seems safe and healthy. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it's so on. I'm good. We're going to totally eat those calls. Okay, good. Okay, good. I got you. I got you. I know right where to take you. Cool. It's in hand. So I look forward to it. Okay. All right, you. Delighted to meet you. Thanks, Maggie. Thanks, Jen. So I hope that meant as much to you as it did to me. Her beautiful words are a gift, really a gift to the world, definitely to me. If you don't already follow Maggie, today is the day. So if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, we will have not only this episode and all the show notes for it, but all of Maggie's social handles and her website and all of her books and everything you want. If you would like to discover a little bit more about Maggie and her work, she is just one of the best, one of the best. And we get to have her in our generation. And so I loved my conversation with her today. I just felt understood and seen and connected to her. And so listen, you're going to love, love, love her work. Run your little feet to start reading her stuff. So thank you so much for being such an invested part of this flipping the script series. I have loved it really. I just, I've really learned a lot. I've been so inspired and you guys next week, we start a brand new series and I think you're going to love it. Do not miss it. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, just go do that. (laughs) Subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. We're so grateful when you do that. Thank you for all your reviews and your ratings too. That means so much to us. And so from Laura and the podcast production team and Amanda and I, we love you. And it is our joy to do this show week in and week out and bring it to you. You're the greatest listening community there is. All right, you guys see you next week.